I was a very gay child. Okay. Um, I was super femme, um, super into musicals, uh, very, um, very difficult to hide. I, I had crushes on boys and I never thought to even hide those kind of things. Um, so I was also kind of an oddball in my own environment. That was journalist and nightclub co-owner Mark Bischke. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Mark takes us back to Michigan in the 70s and 80s. He was an outspoken, and in his words, very gay kid. He eventually got into punk and goth music, and he and his friends put on raves in Detroit. All of this happened before a very serendipitous train trip to San Francisco that changed his life. This episode is going to sound a little different from what you're used to. It was the first of what will be several podcasts recorded using Zoom. Just something we'll have to get used to for a while. Here's Mark. I am a, an adopted child. Um, I'm uh, from the uh, Lebanese uh, Catholic community of Detroit, um, but I was adopted by fabulous French-Canadian, German-Polish parents. Um, and I was raised in Roseville, which is a little bit outside, right on the outskirts of Detroit. Um, okay. And also, my mother is from a very extensive farm family in southern okay. Ontario. So oh, wow. I spent half my year... So it's been half my year on the farm in Southern Ontario with zillions of relatives um, because everybody is related there in farm wow. country down there. And then I'd come back and I'd spend the rest of the year in kind of a semi-urban environment right. um, by Detroit. Um, uh, and of course, yeah, when, you, so of course when you're in Canada, thing. people are nicer immediately, right? right. And then you come back and you're <laughs> like, everyone's pissed <laughs> off. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, everyone was really nice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. we were all picking cucumbers out in the field. So we were all, wow. We were all friends and relatable. Um, what an yeah, image. It was definitely, I would, yeah, my cousin, um, I would stay mostly with my aunt and uncle when I would be in Canada with my family. We have a farmhouse out there. Um, and they have uh, 12 kids. So it was a huge Whoa. family to come from. Okay. Um, I myself, I myself have a just one sister, okay. um, but uh, I really was kind of de facto brothers and sisters with about twelve of my relatives. So it was, right, yeah, y'all were big family. Yeah. Y'all were really close. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, are you Are you then, older um, than your sister? Or is... I am. I am okay. the oldest one. We're both adopted. Okay. Um, yeah, she is the opposite of me. She's very blonde and fair-haired. Okay. Um, and blue-eyed, and whereas I have kind of the typical figure features of uh, a Lebanese person, right, <laughs> right down to uh, right down to uh, the uh, the uh, unfortunate uh, sprouts of facial hair where I don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, we're mammals, right? We're exactly, mammals. yeah. Some of us more mammal mammalian. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you mentioned kind of, you know, kind of splitting a lot of your childhood time between Ontario and, um, I think especially with that contrast, you'd have, you'd have impressions of like what, you know, what was Detroit like, especially that, with that contrast. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, especially in the seventies, Detroit was kind of, uh, in a total flux. Um, you know, my parents, uh, were part of the white flight movement mm. out of Detroit right. um, to the suburbs. Um, okay. 
it, that happened in the 60s. Um, and, and uh, you know, obviously redlining made it impossible for people of color and black people to move out of Detroit, uh, which is why my Lebanese community the, that I came from still is a huge part of Detroit as well. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, after the riots in 67, 68, um, Detroit became a very changed town. It was already changing. Right. Um, so when I was growing up, um, uh, it was just starting to get the reputation that it garnered eventually internationally as a very tough, downtrodden, poverty-stricken mm -hmm. place, um, you know, much of which was very true, um, a lot of which existed in contrast with the rich white suburbs of all the people who had taken their money and left. Right. Um, so, so yeah. Did you see that? Were you, time. were you aware of that as a kid? Yeah. 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 My grand, my grandmother moved, lived um, downtown still, not downtown, but she lived on the East side. We're, we're East side Detroiters. And um, she had a house kind of towards the outskirts of Detroit uh, around seven mile road, six, seven mile road, a street called Kraft. And that was right before you would hit one of the richest suburbs in the country of Gross Point. Mm. Oh. Um, and that line, yeah. And that line became this surreal uh, dystopian future where you would go from, you know, it was, it was kind of declining in my grandmother's time, but you would go from small houses that were beginning to be burnt out, buildings that were abandoned, mm -hmm. um, you know, very little population, burnt out uh, whole sections of blocks, to suddenly these rich stained glass mansions on the water um, right. that had their own police force. Um, wow. You know, it was very RoboCop. If you watch the movie RoboCop, you can see where that kind of dystopian future comes right. from. Um, and I, I took my husband back there to see a few years ago, um, and we were driving, and, you know, he was just amazed, and it brought back home to me how, you know, this was just such a, something I had lived with for so long, right. where you just, just crossing the, the line, you know. Yeah. There. Yeah. Was it um, was it something like your family was aware of and talked about? Was it an open, not an, uh, not a secret kind right. of like? There's this thing <laughs> in mean, this place we live. I mean, my family is very realist, and they're very they they are people who definitely talk about things. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like this the kind of changes that were happening were so big that they from a previous generation didn't have a language to speak yeah. about it. Right. Um, so I know that um, I had, my generation, I had so many friends from Detroit and so many friends from outside Detroit. I had black friends. I had friends, we have a huge Asian population in Detroit mm -hmm. that, and, and Mexican population that doesn't get mm -hmm. talked about. And I was lucky enough to have friends from all of those places, mm -hmm. which, you know, was so different from the hegemony of my parents, the homogenousness of my parents' generation. Right. Yeah. Um, but we definitely, I mean, I was a super outspoken liberal radical leftist from the time I was a kid. And so oh, wow. even if they, yeah, I was very, I was very argumentative about what was going on. And so my poor parents had to kind of, no matter what stance they took, it wouldn't have been radical. Enough <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think you got that from? You know, I mean, I don't really know. I kind of, it's one of the things I actually admire about myself is that I don't know where I got a lot of it from. I think a lot of it was probably inculcated from um, Sesame Street, kind of we mm. are one togetherness, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, kind of the, 
what now people would call maybe a little bit of neoliberalism, but it's like diversity is the way, you know, mm -hmm. and I looked around my community and I didn't see a lot of diversity and that kind of woke me up to what the heck is going on here. Right. I think another, another thing that woke me up was when I was um, eight, my family, my dad got a position, he was a financial advisor, he got a position in London, and so we all moved over to the UK for a oh, couple of years. Okay. And that, and I went to an American school there um, called uh, American Community School in Hillingdon, um, and it was full of, at that time, which was 1978, 79, it was full of refugees from other countries. Oh, okay. So we had a lot of Iranian refugees. We had a lot of, there were people coming in from Africa. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, they would all go to the American school because they weren't quite in the same system as the British school, right. the UK school. So I met just people from all over the world and that really woke me up to what was happening in the world. And you said you were, <laughs> you were eight or how old were yeah. you? Yeah, eight, I was, I was, let me think. I was nine when we moved. Yeah, nine. That'll we do it, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, as I was asking that question, I realized, at least for myself and for some people, you're like, well, how did you know? How did you come about your worldview or whatever? It is like by living, by just like <laughs> getting out of the if you grew up in the suburbs, like getting out of the suburbs, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Getting to see the world, and also, I was a very gay child. Okay. Um, I was super femme, um, super into musicals, uh, very, um, very difficult to hide. I, I had crushes on boys and I never thought to even hide those kind of things. Um, so I was also kind of an oddball in my own environment. Okay. I mentioned that here I was this like Arab kid with a big nose and darker features, which are actually dark when I can go out in the sun. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I, I was kind of already like a little bit of an outsider. My community was always very loving, a Catholic. Uh, they were Roman Catholic. My neighborhood was very Italian. Um, everyone was always very loving and accepting. Um, but it was hard not to notice how different I was from them a lot of the time. Right. And your family um, was cool. Like, was there, was there a coming out? Every, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but like. Right. Yeah. No, I had to, when I was 19, I had to officially declare my coming out just okay. because we needed a point right. where I came out. Um, right. But before then, it basically had been happening and my parents hadn't really bought, like I had brought dates home. Uh, we hadn't had deep conversations about it. Um, I think a lot of it was it was during the height of AIDS. So my parents okay. were a little afraid to delve into, but, uh, but right. yeah, um, I was gay as, gay as can be from the very beginning. <laughs> okay. I mean, in a, in a, in a way I would think that's easier for you, right? It's, you never, yeah. did you ever have I to I struggle mean, with that with your homosexuality? I, I mean, I think it kind of comes with being a Roman Catholic that you have to struggle with, you know, waking up in the morning. Being like, alive, <laughs> how yeah. Dare, how yes. dare you? Yes, oh, I fucked up um, already. But, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. but definitely, um, you know, anything sexual or anything like that, uh, you know, is very, is very guilt-ridden, et cetera. And so, I mean, there were some moments when it was like, there, there were moments when I just was like, I'm going to try to pray to be normal. Um, even though I know how silly that is, you know, but you're under, you're alone, you're in the suburbs, you're, you know, there's no internet, right. there's none of that kind of thing. Right. Um, luckily, I had other gay friends that I um, could meet up with who are from a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it's like, 
you never saw a gay person. I mean, we had Paul Lynn on Hollywood Squares. <laughs> Center Square. <laughs> Robin Liberace, but who knew? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of, uh, I, I guess, uh, so I, I did jump ahead a little bit, but going back yeah. to kind of your, like, teenage years, your, you mm-hmm. know, your high school, middle school, high school, formative years, what kind of things were you and maybe your friends doing? Kind of things Right, well, to? I mean... So I went to, when we came back from the UK, I was enrolled in Catholic schools, um, oh. first to finish middle school um, at a small uh, place called St. Thecla. We moved to kind of a little suburb called Mount Clemens. Um, and uh, and I managed to make some friends there, but I was, that was when I was really, my difference was thrown into high relief. That was when people started threatening to beat me up. And uh, actually did beat me up on occasions, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was a very, um, and you didn't have anyone to turn to because you were, you know, the head nun was not going to listen to you. Um, right. And uh, so that, but I did manage to find some great friends from that. So, um, okay. and that was when I started being really into like goth music, mm. punk music, industrial music. Like I really found an outlet in not only the flamboyant pop stars of the era, like Boy George, which were who were and Annie Lennox, who were real lifesavers to people mm-hmm. who didn't fit into binary gender um, expressions, um, but or were looking for something beyond that. Um, but also just I suddenly because I came from London, I came back with all these records that no absolutely nobody had. A, they didn't know who Japan was, you know. Right. They didn't know who Ultravox was. They didn't know who all these bands. I was Scritti Politti. I was listening to all these bands, yes. and suddenly I was the cool kid because I had right. a line on all the records and I had friends who would send me records. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And this is like so, mid, mid to late eighties. This of. is right now we're talking for, for grade school was like 1980. Yeah. Mid eighties, like 1983, 84. Wow. Um, so that was really a plus um, then. And then I went to an all boys high school called De La Salle Collegiate, um, okay. which was a total change for me. Um, in terms of just being in a total male environment. Right. Um, was it Catholic as well? or It was Catholic as well, yes. It was run by Catholic brothers. Um, you know, so they weren't quite priests, weren't quite nuns, but they drank a lot. Priests <laughs> 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 and training. Were, was, <laughs> yes. And, you know, there were some amazing teachers. It was very, uh, it was very um, education-oriented. Um, I had won a scholarship to go to high school, actually, uh, mm-hmm. a national merit scholarship. So I really enjoyed um, learning from a lot of the things. But it was also very difficult because it was an all boys environment. Yeah. Um, and they were very, they were, it was, that was, that was very cruel. Um, you know, the, that was where you, I got the beatings and all mm-hmm. that stuff and didn't mm-hmm. really suicidal thoughts and didn't mm-hmm. want to go to school, yeah. would make up any excuse not to go to school. Um, but uh, uh was that an ongoing which, which thing tough. or was it? It, it you know in that weird way of life it wasn't when you tell the story it seems like that's the one thing that was happening but there were so many other things that were happening i was right. forming a group of friends from other schools and starting to go out to nightclubs okay. i went to my first club i went to my, my first club when i was 14 um, because luckily at that time you only had to be 18 to get in the club so it was right. easier to fake an id <laughs> yeah and and going back uh, to your complexion and your facial hair right and, uh, <laughs> like, exactly. yeah i'm 25 so. <laughs> i'll buy the beer um and so uh, um so yeah i just threw myself into club life and that was like a real lifesaver 
So on the one hand, I was having this annoying thing at school, but on the other hand, I was having all these connections and going out at night and having all these adventures that nobody there could ever dream of. So joke was right. on them. Right. <laughs> Anything else about Detroit that you that you want to talk about yep. before we leave Detroit, at least? Sure. Yeah. So um, I mean, my introduction to clubs in Detroit was at this incredible time um, in, in the mid '80s. It was a super fertile kind of like globally uh, recognized period where uh, new wave and industrial and disco were merging together with funk and soul and R&B and creating techno and yeah. house. Yep. So when I started to go to, to, to clubs, I was going out right at the beginning of house and techno. So I was okay. there from the very beginning of the scene. The people who created the music were my friends. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just this insane time to be going out in Detroit and Chicago at that time. And so after I graduated from high school was right when raves were starting to happen. Oh. Um, so my friends and I were the first to throw raves in Detroit. Yes. Um, and <laughs> and yes. the reason we <laughs> and the reason we wanted to throw them was just because we were seeing how goofy and big raving was getting. And we wanted to make sure that uh, Detroit the music from Detroit was getting heard, not just music from Europe and stuff like that. So, uh, oh, that's so, so cool. My, yeah, so I put myself through college at Wayne State University throwing raves, throwing underground <laughs> raves in abandoned buildings in Detroit. Nice. <laughs> Wayne State, sorry, Wayne State is in Detroit or? Wayne State's downtown Detroit. Yeah, downtown the, the okay. State College of Detroit, yeah. So you stuck around, but you didn't just like, j just to be like, right. oh, I'm close to home. You're like... <laughs> No, bitches, we're starting yeah. raves. Yeah, no, I that was moving. So awesome. I moved the minute I could. I moved downtown. I got an apartment, and we just started uh, going into abandoned buildings, bringing in sound systems, setting up yes. DJs, and uh, partying all night long. Yeah. So, like, the beeper numbers would go to back to you? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we had the hotlines. We had a yes. – uh, our, our mascot was a big dolphin. Um, so wherever nice. you saw the sign of the dolphin, you knew that that was where the party was going to be. Did they have um, yeah, names? Did your parties have names or was it just yeah. the dolphin? No. Uh, so our party collective was called Zoom, V-O-O-M. And uh, um, that was uh, kind of the beginning time when people were starting to call their collective something. Um, right. And we also like had, I mean, of course, back then we thought we were geniuses, but now it's a little embarrassing, but we thought, you know, we had a whole philosophical counterpart, you know, we were bringing yeah. situationism into it and we we're bringing deconstructionism into it and all these economic yes. theories that have been applied to Detroit, we wanted to subvert and bring broadcast them back out on the suburbs to show that the suburbs were actually the ones living in cultural poverty in Detroit. Mm -hmm. was like, you know, plus we, it was the middle of Afrocentrism, so we had the fabulous, uh, you know, uh, array of different um, influences and philosophies coming through. So it was like, yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. I, it's <laughs> not that you guys didn't have an active hand in it, but it sounds like just like a perfect coming together of a lot of it was yeah elements. it was the time it was one of those where you're living in the crucible of a certain kind of history and right. you feel like this is the right time you know this is yeah. what, what is happening i mean however 
um, despite the, all the wonderful people coming into town um, for our parties, uh, us going out of town, um, it was still very lonely being a gay man in the Midwest in the middle mm -hmm. of AIDS, mm -hmm. um, especially a young one. Um, and I graduated from Wayne State with a writing and anthropology degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized pretty quickly that there, I was not going to have a career as a writer mm. um, in Detroit, right. especially before the internet where like you either, there were like, there were two newspapers and an alternative weekly. And if you didn't get on them, <laughs> <you're> like, <laughs> you couldn't just blog, you know, impossible so, uh, nut to crack. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so after, so after college, I was kind of couch surfing. Um, when my best friend said, we're changing our lives. I bought us two train tickets. We're moving to San Francisco tomorrow. Um, uh, and one of those like classic bohemian, uh, movie road movie twists. And, uh, um, so we packed up our backpacks and hopped on a train. Oh my God. Before, uh, or I said, I guess, um, aside from London, had you traveled much out of the, the area? <clears throat> Not as much. I mean, because we had the farmhouse in Canada, um, my family never really took, we never took really family trips. I had come out to California when I was 15 to visit my aunt with my family who lived out here in Livermore. Um, oh. And I fell in love with, yeah, yeah, I fell in love with California. So when we were in San Francisco, I decided I would ditch my family and take the cable car to the Castro where all the gays were. But yes. of course the cable car doesn't go to the Castro. Nope. <laughs> so I was like on this cable car wondering where the was. Don't tell where anyone, don't tell anyone who doesn't live here that. The cable car <laughs> totally, totally goes to the Castro. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> and they serve rice a on, on the car. car. <laughs> Surely this will take me to the gays. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk just quickly before before that train trip out here. Um, that first trip to Livermore. What were your? Yeah. Was that your first trip time to California? It was my first time to California. Um, I had planned. I planned a month ahead of time all my looks because I had. I was coming out. I was going to make sure that uh, you know what was kind of happening at the time. Uh, this was 1985, 1986. So the California punk scene was getting really big. And I, you know, and I had heard a lot of what was going on. I couldn't wait to get to LA to hear KROQ. Uh, yes. You know, I couldn't wait to like see, I was going to see where the Mabuhay Gardens was in San Francisco that I had heard of from friends. But uh, um, we took a road trip from San Francisco down to LA. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to be blown away by the physical beauty of it all um yeah. uh yeah unfortunately we went to disneyland which i could do without for the rest of my life <laughs> it was not my scene yeah. <laughs> especially uh especially at the age of 15 but uh um but it was uh but everything else was just like yeah it just kind of wowed me um i was like whoa a big city Holy right crap. <laughs> right and a functioning big city <laughs> and air like i i, I remember air. my first times i'm from texas but my first times it was like the sun and the air were just different. Everything, yeah. like, everything yeah. was just different. And the, seeing the ocean after only really, you know, I mean, we, we have a beautiful position for our farmhouses right on Lake Huron. So we have gorgeous beaches and a lake, but going to an ocean from seeing a lake all your life was right. like pretty astounding. Yeah. That was Mark Bischke. Join us Thursday for part two, when Mark will tell us all about what he's been doing since he arrived in San Francisco in 1994. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. 
Photography for this episode is by me, Jeff Hunt. I also host and produce the show. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes and help support us by buying merch from our store. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do us a quick favor and rate and review the show. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, stay home, and stay safe. Thank you.